very warm welcome to our audience for yet another edition of our Leaders for Humanity series. And this morning, I'm extremely, extremely proud to have with us a very renowned, globally renowned economist um, who has been extensively publishing about some of the topics we're interested in, both in the English-speaking and the German-speaking world. A very warm welcome uh, to Switzerland and uh, Professor Bruno Frey. A good morning to you. Thank you very much uh, for your very kind words. So it's, it's a true pleasure. And uh, we were spending a few days together uh, in a seminar last week. It was uh, truly enlightening. So thank you again for that. And of course, a warm welcome to Antoinette as uh, my co-host on this edition. Um, we will be running a little bit fast through the introduction today, given some of the time constraints of um, Bruno's. So let me just briefly go to the agenda as always. Um, we will quickly talk about our good organization's inquiry. We will then properly introduce uh, Bruno and uh, then we will go into the subject of today's discussion. And given uh, Bruno's very uh, renowned work on public choice and some of the challenges of modern institutions, we will focus on happiness and economics and the search for better institutions. And we will see what uh, out of the work we can learn both in regards to good society and good organizations. So <clears throat> moving us on to the good organizations inquiry, what is it all about? As we've said many times, it is really a search for how in today's fast changing and complex world, organizations can become good actors in society. How can they step into the role of a good actor as a, a corporate citizen? in regards to the ecology and ecosystem that they are a participant of? How can they become good enablers and containers for the communities that they host in regards to enabling them to flourish and to grow? And finally, how can they become breeding grounds for individuals to lead a good life and find, as we will talk about today, personal happiness and, and well-being? And with that, um, in a shorter version than usual, let me directly hand over to you, Antoinette, for a proper introduction of Professor Frank. Well, I'm very glad that we have Bruno with us. Bruno has been a professor of economics, uh, the director of research institutes, um, hold yourself since 1969. And that in and itself is already just fabulous. He's one of the most cited economists who has um, turned over his lifetime to various areas of economics. For instance, he started with political economics, then went to uh, psychological economics, economics of happiness. So you can see a whole array of different topics. He's a highly productive writer. So I, I was told he al already writes in the wee hours of the morning for half an hour, almost an article or something like that. That of course is a little bit overcome. <laughs> Um, and he's a thought-provoking critic of his own profession, which I believe is quite important. He's holder of multiple honorary doctorates, of which I personally find the one from Aix-en-Provence the most enticing. And why is, it, why is that the case? Because I heard that is also the town where most French people want to live. And I guess this is then a happiness-maximizing place. Um, of his work, I think we find his research on crowding out, but also on happiness, um, probably the most influential one, particularly also outside economics, because Bruno, I have to tell you that almost in all interviews we've led so far, people knew one of your articles in these areas, which I believe is quite astonishing. 
And, and finally, I, I believe you are the reason why I started economics and not only organization and management science, because um, with him, we always had to learn how to think critically, so really thinking, not only repeating stuff, and to address real life and big hairy problems, which I believe is still very important, as we just heard in another seminar. So welcome, Bruno. Um, and I think the first thing we want to give you is the opportunity to introduce yourself. So um, is there anything that beyond uh, this very quick CV I was giving you would like to add for our viewers? Yes, when I think uh, what I have achieved so far, it is mostly having influenced other people and not my own production. And I'm very proud, I must say, that I have a, several of my assistants have become professors and uh, five of them even at the absolute top universities in the United States. And that's what, that's what makes me really proud. That's that's wonderful. Oti. Very interesting. And maybe another question, Bruno. Um, I think in your research, you point out that um, there is a, um, a correlation between positive and meaningful activities and, and happiness. So what drives you these days after having explored much of the world of economics already? To inquire new ideas. Uh, that is probably... Uh, no, that is a problem of mine. If I had started just doing one thing, for instance, I have a friend who did all his life uh, the shadow economy. And now he's, he's the Pope of the shadow economy. While I have tried to work in very many different areas, and uh, that makes it difficult for people to remember what I did. Wonderful. And I think we are very grateful to the fact that you've explored so many areas <laughs> because we found so many interesting ideas. And let's then um, dive right into it. I will just bring up one slide, as always, briefly to frame our inquiry. So here it is. As always, what we will seek to do is to first investigate the, what is the good society and what is good. And here today, with Bruno um, being so outspoken in the world of happiness research, we will really focus on happiness and economics. We will then move on to not only good organizations, but actually good institutions and learn a little bit from public choice theory, from what it means to build good institutions and what potentially is transferable into the world of business. And finally, we will move to how can we individually and collectively become better and look at potential for, for societal transformation, but also um, uh, transformation in academia. And again, I've, I've read some outspoken articles um, of yours, Bruno, and we will be intrigued to hear a little bit what role universities and maybe executive education these days or leadership education can play. So this is the playground, staying in the metaphor, so to speak. I will stop sharing the slide. And I would suggest we go right into it um, with the first section, which is about good and especially happiness. So I think, um, Bruno, would you mind maybe framing this for our listeners first? You, you describe in your book on economics and happiness quite um, clearly and extensively how from a world of utility we have moved towards a world of 
happiness. What what has what 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 is the story? What uh, what was that change? And um, um, what does happiness, in your own word, um, mean for for um, the comparison to utility, especially? Uh, my story is that. As an economist, I was educated that it is impossible to measure utility. And therefore, all the economic theory, microeconomics, has been developed without having to measure utility. And that was an achievement, but I always found it uh, uh, lacking. And so I looked around who could say something about measuring utility. Then I found out that some uh, psychologists knew about how to measure utility and uh, a, bit, a little bit more broadly, happiness. And that was uh, the, the, the way I uh, came into the uh, area. And the interesting thing is that at the beginning, my colleagues found it terrible. They said, uh, you should read uh, a textbook in microeconomics because there you find that it's impossible to measure. And uh, if uh, that had been, uh, if they had, uh, had, if they could have controlled me, they would have stopped everything about uh, happiness. And this shows again, we should have an institution where uh, researchers should have opportunities to go outside the received field. And uh, that is uh, difficult to do. And I think an institution we have in, in uh, German-speaking uh, universities, namely the uh, chair or Lehrstuhl, is one possibility because it gives you a little bit of independence. There are other institutions where you always have to, to go to a higher a higher uh, organization, for instance, the faculty, and then they discuss and uh, decide whether they give you money to do research. And in, my case, and in my case, they would have said, no, uh, happiness cannot be measured. Ridiculous. That's uh, bad psychology, etc. And uh, I, think, I think that is um, one remark, Antoinette, very interesting. It links to McIntyre's criticism of the institution vis-a-vis the innate goodness of the practice. And I think we will come to crowding out effects in a, in a minute. Um, but Bruno, I have one follow-up on the utility versus um, happiness because I found your book very intriguing because the, the, the notion of utility, of course, the, goes back to the utilitarians and Bentham and Adam Smith. And you describe how in, at the beginning of the neoclassical economics, it is isolated of any measure because it becomes revealed preferences. It almost becomes a very clinical concept. And then your turn towards happiness and the Easterlitz and others almost brings some real life pragmatism and some, some degree of, um, of a mess back into that wonderful world of economics. And I wonder, is there, uh, is there a normative connotation or would you say it's just an empirical change where people say actually it's not quite how this, the theory works? Uh, that's a di uh, difficult uh, answer. I, I think it's not very uh, normative. It's just that we look at something uh, different. And you mentioned the word real life. And that's something which I try to do. And unfortunately, 
in economics as in many other uh, disciplines. Uh, reality, the real life is not very important, but other theories and people and uh, young scholars especially only deal with those uh, theoretical conceptions. And perhaps one, one small thing, I started happiness research without knowing what happiness is. I didn't have a clear and a precise definition. And a lot of philosophers would say, that's total nonsense. You, you must know exactly what you do research on. In economics, and, and I think that's a good thing about economics, we first start at looking at a phenomenon. And when we have studied it, especially empirically, we are able to define it. It's a totally different approach compared to what most uh, philosophers suggest. Oh, that's wonderful because that leads us automatically into the first um, big chunk of questions to this real life happiness. So first I would like to know from you how you then make sense, how you measure happiness. And then I would like to know what did you find were the main determinants for individual happiness, but to make that a little bit more exciting for you, what were the most surprising findings um, at least from the perspective of economics. The interesting thing is that we did not define happiness, but we started from the presumption that individuals know quite well whether they are happy or unhappy. And that now comes from uh, psychology. We had, uh, uh, we asked people the question, taken overall, how satisfied are you with the life you lead? And that means it's not a short-run thing, you know, because the weather is very nice, you are happier. No, it's the life you lead. But it's neither a very, very, very deep uh, sense of happiness as some philosophers have uh, inquired uh, about. So it's something intermediate, but I think it's really what matters in life. And so uh, uh, we, we did uh, research, we, we did surveys, uh, asking people, taken overall, how satisfied are you with the life you lead? And we got very reasonable answers, uh, namely most people in Switzerland, Germany, and, and in Western countries uh, are, have a happiness level which is surprisingly high. It's something between seven, eight, seven and eight out of ten. And that shows that mankind, at least in our area, is quite happy. But I must immediately add, if one asks people in very poor countries, they are very unhappy. They are around four or five or even lower. And this is important because there are a lot of people running around in the world and say, oh, it's uh, material welfare is totally important. It's all in your stomach. It's all in you. And you can be happy without uh, any income. That's totally wrong. All the evidence we have says exactly the opposite, that higher income makes you happier. But of course, when you double your income, you are not 
twice as happy. That would be absolutely ridiculous. There is a decreasing return on uh, on income for happiness, of course. Uh, You asked what I find the most important uh, uh, thing. There are two. One is, in addition to happiness, it's personal relationships. Uh, Knowing people, having friends, having a good family life, having a lot of acquaintances, that really is important for happiness. And in my own life, I changed it. Because before, I always thought, I don't have time to meet uh, acquaintances and friends. Now I do it differently. I meet about 12 or 15 persons each, uh, just in in, uh, two, so that we are only two persons. And then we eat uh, lunch or, uh, or dinner and discuss for two hours. And then we meet again in two or three uh, months. And that is uh, a very, very good for me because I meet very different people. I meet an ethnologist, I meet a chemist, I meet, uh, I need, uh, I meet young people, I meet older people, etc. That is uh, extremely interesting uh, to me. The second very important determinant of happiness, in my view, is uh, the political constitutions. When you look at why are some people, uh, sorry, why are some nations poor? Uh, I think we cannot say people are silly or less intelligent than the Swiss or less engaged or or don't want to work. No, it's normally the uh, the bad political institution let me give you an example if somebody starts something new in a very poor country uh, immediately all the relatives want to participate if you if you are uh, successful and want to have part of the income but even more importantly when you are successful uh, politicians politicians will note it and they come to they start taking it away from you so that uh, being an entrepreneurial in a poor society with a bad political institution with bad in political institutions uh, uh, makes it impossible for you while in a, in a country like uh, Sweden or Denmark or Norway or Switzerland or Germany you can start new ideas and uh, become reasonably successful. I would like to ask one follow-up question, bro, on the on the first part, the the personal factors that correlate with happiness. And I, I recommend your work on happiness and economics to anyone interested in uh, the research that is out there. And I think in your work on on economics as a as a science of human behavior, I think you're pointing out the empirical nature of some of your work. Um. I could not get a good feeling for the different for the 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 um, weight of some of the factors that play a role, and I think what you're pointing out in regards to money, you said, is mostly relevant for cross-country research. Whilst inside a specific country, you can see some of the nuances of the decreasing return, so to speak, on on income. But I only found one work that you cite, a German piece where people have tried to understand the relevance of 
um, psychological personality factors vis-a-vis -vis demographic and social factors. And I think the third bucket they call error, and it was roughly 30, 30, 30% in regards to determining happiness. What is your own perspective on how important is the personality of the individual and whether they're extrovert or introvert, etc. How important is um, the socioeconomic contingency? And finally, the relevance of other factors, like you mentioned, institutions. Is there any weighting or is it completely subjective? Uh, I think the answer I have to give is I'm not a psychologist. Therefore, I don't know the first part of what you suggested, namely the the really psychological uh, Im the uh, importance of having relationships on a on a psychological uh, level i don't know anything about that and i i think the the nice thing about happiness research is that uh, economists and psychologists work together uh, in a very interesting way so i i leave it to them so i think the other aspects, namely material aspects and the constitutional aspects are very, very important. And to, to, uh, to say what's, what constitutional is, is certainly how we are government, how much we can contribute, how much are we as individuals involved in decision making. And in many politicians elected and afterwards they are a close group and are not interested whatsoever in what the population means. You can see that today in Germany where, where they try to, to find a new government. They never speak about what people want, but rather what the other parties want. So it's a close group. And I think very it's very important that that there are institutions which enable people to directly participate. For me, democracy is coming from the bottom and not uh, imposed from above. That is a, a fundamental difference uh, also among political philosophers. And I'm one of those who think uh, democracy means that normal people as as you and me are able to participate and the second aspect of this political influence on happiness is that it is important to be decentralized so that people are in an environment they know and that things are not determined from above as it, as this is the case for instance in france uh, and I think Switzerland is quite good. Uh, you mentioned before that we met at a conference uh, in a little, little, in the smallest canton of Switzerland of 16,000 persons, which is very small, but that they know what is happening in their little canton and can make uh, reasonable decisions. Interesting that the little canton we went to was famous also because they wouldn't allow women to vote until 30 years ago. But I want to, I want to um, probably, Antoinette, make two more questions in this section and indeed then go on to the political institutions, which I think is absolutely fascinating, as you mentioned, Bruno. But I have one more question maybe on the nature of happiness in some of the 
problems with how people seek to maximize happiness. And I think what I'm, um, we've seen a lot in your work about some of the um, challenges in terms of biases and expectation theory in regards to how people um, fail to optimize happiness. I think that is worth digging in maybe, Antoinette. And then I have one more question taking it to a higher level in regards to justice. But you, you mentioned now various times maximizing uh, happiness and optimizing happiness. I don't think that this is uh, a, the correct way to approach happiness. We, we live, and when we live well, we, as, as an outcome, you might say that is happiness. That is pursuing happiness in the best way. But nobody should sit, uh, should get up in the morning and say, uh, today I want to maximize my happiness. I think life is totally different. You, 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 you live and do things and do other things. And uh, you should, here you can, you can, of course, influence happiness by doing uh, important things, for instance, as I said, having more intensive contacts to other people, which uh, many, many of our colleagues uh, and people in business are so uh, time constrained that they forget that family is important. And especially, I mean, Today, a lot of people speak about the family, but I think friends and acquaintances and an interchange uh, without uh, being stressed by time, I think that is very important and really leads you to be happier. I think that is a very interesting point you're making, Bruno, and it, it has come across some of your writings, so not to maximize happiness. And I, I, I feel there's a little bit of a human sense in in rather living your life in the moment in the most compelling fashion. I wanted to take this, again, a little bit this utilitarian versus normative versus, I think you could almost say, experiential, being in the, in the middle of life, which, which I think is your approach. Um, I wanted to take it to, to justice, because I think you mentioned Rawls and the veil of ignorance somewhere in regards to how people transactionally contract in their liberty to contract. So the, the, the concept of freedom being very prevalent in, in our today's society and in, in the notion of justice in the way that Rawls frames it. And I think I, I, I sensed a little bit that it is not entirely in line with your thinking how would what you have seen in happiness research or wider economics relate to what is justice in society? Have you got a view on that? Uh, I'm not uh, very, uh, very much engaged in this, uh, uh, in this question where, whether so something is just or not. Uh, I'm, I, I didn't do research on exactly that uh, question. Uh, one issue which is very important to me is about this maximization of happiness, which is very often, uh, uh, no, governments are very often saying they are maximizing happiness, or people tell uh, uh, politicians that they should maximize the, uh, the happiness of, in society. And I think that is a wrong approach because 
nobody knows what the happiness of the uh, 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 of society overall is. I know how I feel, but not what all the others uh, feel. And even more importantly, uh, assume that a government says uh, wants to no states that it wants to pursue happiness not pursue but even maximize happiness the first thing they will do is they will manipulate the happiness figures which is very easy to do for instance in some countries including the united states in some uh, in some states of the united states uh, people who are in prison are not part are not taken to be part of society, they are not allowed to vote, and therefore uh, researchers don't ask them how happy they are. So if you include or exclude them, that makes a huge difference. And also with people that are have psychic problems, should they be taken or not? And, and the, so the government has a lot of opportunities to man manipulate uh, uh, the overall happiness a figure. Therefore, I think it's wrong to ask governments to maximize happiness because we know that they will not really do it. They will, uh, they will rather change what happiness is measured and not how happy really people are. So I think it's sufficient to tell them, look, there are important things that happiness research tells you and try to uh, to do it to give you an example uh, unemployment meaning that you were employed and then you are kicked out because for some reason you lose the job that makes you very very unhappy independent of the income even if you have the same income you would be very unhappy because you don't have any contacts anymore you are thrown out of uh, society so uh, governments should learn from uh, from happiness research that unemployment is a very important thing and i think denmark does it very well they allow uh, that that firms dismiss people, but they have a lot of institutions helping people to get a, a job very quickly again. And so the 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 problem is is approached in a very good way. While in other countries, for instance, in Italy, it's almost or Austria, it's almost impossible to dismiss anybody. Uh, and then uh, you are in the unfortunate situation that uh, you you stay in the firm, but in reality you are uh, you are no longer a, a useful member. It, um, it reminds me, Antoinette, of Henry Mintzberg's point of care over cure, and I yeah. think Stefano Zamani was uh, talking exactly about this. He said some of the challenges in in well-being cannot be resolved by redistribution because it doesn't address the notion of shame he mentions when people stand in the lines to get this, their, their, their um, benefits, so to speak, when they're without work. It requires a, a deeper understanding of the connotations. But I think, Antoinette, back to you and maybe into the next section. Yeah, I think um, that goes very well with you finding overall that participation is extremely important. 
Is it participation in the work life or participation in democracy? So I would like to go back to one of your main findings and one thing you have told us forever, um, that is about direct democracy and federalism. Um, and here I'm, of course, taking up also the other side, the public choice side or the political economic side, and would like to know a little bit deeper from you. Um, it seems to be good for happiness, but what about efficiency, efficiency and what about the conditions? So, I mean, you know, most people would say, well, Germany is too big, we can't do direct democracy, or others would say the legacy of France is centralization, how could we do federalism? What is your answer to these typical comments? Antoinette, thank you very much for this question, which is, of course, very important. Uh, I just want to repeat, uh, the possibility to participate really raises happiness. We did research on that and uh, could empirically, statistically show that this is indeed uh, the case. But the efficiency question is very important. In most countries, I think, for instance, in France or in Germany, most people think you must leave the important question to the politicians who are specialists on these issues. My view is different. Uh, it's not that direct democracy in the sense of being able to say yes or no, which is the important thing. It is the discussion taking place before the vote. And uh, we can observe that in Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, people speak about forthcoming uh, referenda uh, uh, in the family, among friends, in the restaurant, and just, in, of course, in the newspapers, in the social media. And that is very important, that there is an exchange of views, of positive and negative views on a, on a, on a referendum. And uh, I think that is what really democracy is. And it's even true that when uh, an outcome is, is very close, let's say 50.5% are for something and uh, 49.5% uh, are against it, uh, afterwards, after the vote, there are adjustments. One takes into account that the majority, the minority is very large and the majority is small. So one, one sees there are two aspects which have been discussed before and then one should, uh, uh, should uh, uh, consider it. Uh, let me give me, uh, you an example. There was a, a vote on whether uh, people in uh, Swiss men should be constrained, forced to do military service? And the answer was yes. So one, uh, one was forced to do military service, but immediately afterwards, immediately means half a year later or a year later, uh, civil service was introduced and it's now used by many people. I think that's a, a convenient way to, to go to, to consider the interests of normal people. Can I ask a question on here? Because I found your early writings on public choice very interesting. And as I told you last week, it's an uncharted territory for myself, really. Um, I wondered, so I came across, um, first and foremost, the, the vote-maximizing models, where pu public actors seek to just do whatever's needed to get reelected. And there was a notion that 
potentially that helps them to support the preferences in the population. But then there was a whole theory about um, political business cycle theory, where potentially they might do things that exacerbate the situation or even rent-seeking and special interest theory. So is there a situation where um, we have in modern states very often a, situ um, uh, a non optimization, so to speak, or not even a clear enough interest in supporting the population in becoming happy, so to speak. What, what, how do you see that territory? Yes, uh, I think politicians are indeed very, very interested in uh, being re-elected, which could be termed vote maximization. Uh, they make a lot... I mean, politicians are people who are good in talking. And so they talk about what they all, what they presume doing for the, for the society, uh, while in reality they want and must be re-elected. So uh, that is a very important aspect. But after the, 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 the election, they forget all this, and uh, and uh, are a close circle, and there are many deviations from the interests of the population. And one interesting uh, aspect you you just men mentioned, Otti, political business cycles, uh, which uh, means that between elections, politicians and the government pursues a a, a policy which is. Considerable, considerably away from the interests of the population as a whole and towards when the election is coming again they try to adjust a little bit to what uh, uh, people want and that is interesting for economists because Keynes said when there is a depression then you should spend money while uh, the political business cycle does exactly the opposite. It creates business cycles. And that's a new aspect which uh, I found to be quite interesting and which we found that it exists in, uh, in several countries, in many countries like the United States, Germany and, uh, and others. It's very interesting. And Antoinette, it resonates with, uh, I think, Paul Adler's view that we will, I'm sure, hear more about where he suggests that modern governments will not be able to create that institutional environment, Bruno, that you're talking about. Because on the one hand, I think what you're, what you're hinting at is that their, their own um, behaviors might not be conducive to creating the environment. And secondly, special interests have come to be a very strong in pointing or in, in, in guiding the government towards, towards um, kind of the well-being of few rather than many. And I think this is also, again, Henry Mintzberg said, uh, he, in the United States, uh, we have the best democracy money can buy because so many people can influence the government with their money. So can, can yes. what, what's mm. your view? More, more direct democracy, is that in itself going to solve the situation? And may I just very quickly chip in because Fatter just looked at direct democracy uh, again, in a review article, and he came up out that the jury is still out whether direct democracy too is influenced too strongly by certain interest groups. So it's more for the few than for the many.
I'm just, we're really interested in your answer here. Uh, special interests are very important also in direct democracies. But I think the interesting thing is what interests are uh, organized? Some are very strongly and others that are equally important are not uh, organized. For instance, today, uh, environmental and uh, climate uh, interests are strongly organized. Others, for instance, uh, the, uh, regarding the, the distribution of income are less organized. For instance, uh, or one aspect of this is that in parliaments, uh, people with lower education and uh, lower, lower level jobs are not represented in government. Uh, and that is, uh, that is uh, so Parliament is not really representative in this sense. Uh, therefore, um, uh, Margit Oslo and I and, and Katja Ross uh, are strongly engaged in suggesting that one takes a real random selection of people, of, of people in a, in, in a nation, and uh, forms a chamber of government, uh, of a parliament, based on this representative selection of people. One could still have the other types of parliament uh, in, uh, in, in Switzerland, for instance, the Nationalrat and the Ständerat, or uh, in, uh, in the European Union, there is a European Union Parliament, but we should have an additional one where really people are re represented in a, in a true way. And that would change the discussion very, very much. And uh, there are uh, very good examples in Ireland and in other countries where decisions have changed because those people who otherwise have no say in politics can at least can, can make themselves, uh, uh, express themselves. And it should be uh, a really an important decision uh, uh, and not just uh, some type uh, of uh, advice to the government what to do. It should be binding. Otherwise, uh, politicians say, oh, yes, that was very nice to hear what, uh, uh, what the population wants. And now we go on. So it's not only a council, but it would be a true decision body. And what I hear is first you told us again, please compare. It's not better in representative democracy than in direct ones. But that's the first thing you told us. In direct democracies, you still have some further um, checks and balances. And then even in direct democracies, it would be a good idea to have this random draw in the representation to make sure that we have some of these other interests not instit institutionalized, now institutionalized. But let me go a step further because that all also, I believe, needs to be met by good citizenship. And I mean, that's of course another important area where you are doing research particularly when you say we also have to think about citizenship in a more um, unconventional way. So you are a champion of what is called flexible citizenship for a global society. 
maybe you can tell us a little bit what this is all about. And I think it has a new name, you told me, an up and sell, but I didn't find the new name so quickly. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I have a, a proposal. Uh, today's citizen, somebody is a citizen or is not a citizen. Uh, let's take a, 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 a concrete example. Uh, very soon in Switzerland, we will have a referendum on whether young people aged 16 to 18, after 18 you have the normal voting right, but those between 16 and 18 years of age have no voting right today. And now uh, there, there was there's the proposition that they should have total, a complete voting right. I have a different uh, idea. I would like to have a vote on that question. Uh, and if 80% of the people say, yes, let's give a vote to those between 16 and 18, I think they should have a vote, but only with a weight of 80%. Let's assume the other another case, that only 20% of the people think that the young ones should have a, a vote. Then they should have a vote, but only one with a weight of 20%. And this weight is very easy to introduce in a modern society, in a digital society. That's absolutely no problem. So the young people would slowly get more and more vote, and at the age, age 18, they would have a vote of 100%. And the same uh, procedure I suggest for foreigners. Let's assume that uh, uh, a manager comes into Switzerland for, uh, for a year or so. He or she has no interest in Switzerland because uh, he or she knows that she will go away in one year and... Uh, they have no relationship to Swiss people, etc. So they have very little knowledge about Switzerland. Therefore, I think it's ridiculous to give them full voting rights, uh, though they are foreigners. Uh, so again, I would, I would think we should have a vote on that. Uh, and uh, for instance, suggesting that when somebody has been in, uh, in Switzerland five years, or no, let's say four years, Let's have a vote on that, whether they should have a voting right. And again, if 80% uh, think yes, after eight years, they should have full voting rights, yes, then give it to them, but with a weight s smaller than 100%. And after, when, when they have uh, uh, got the, uh, the citizenship, then of course they have full voting rights. What a wonderful idea, Bruno. Thank you. So fractional votes. What came up whilst you were talking for me, though, um, was Bill Torbett's um, discussion of Rousseau. And Rousseau famously striking that difference between general will in regards to the common good and, and almost like the aggregation of individual wills in kind of uh, methodological individualism. And I, I have the feeling, is there not a difference between... 20 people, uh, sorry, 20% of people, and maybe even the elder ones in, in the lead, thinking that younger people should vote, and some general principle whereby it might be much better if 
the young people got 100% of the world because it's their future, so to speak. So are we not having a challenge if the individuals in society are not fundamentally interested in the common good? And that reminds me of Canero's impossibility theorem, where I think he's arguing that you almost need a benign dictatorship to overcome social choice problems because in a society where negative individual freedom is the main arbiter of social choice, you're getting always into a position of impasse. So don't we have a problem with preconditions for your system to work in the interest of all? Yes, uh, I, I see uh, the issue, uh, but I'm, I, I think that our society should be built on individual values and they must be aggregated in a uh, put together in a, in, a, in a reasonable way that this is the important issue, how to do that. And uh, my, uh, my idea is not only through elections, but by direct participating in various forms. And I think this uh, uh, contrarian view that there is something like a social uh, a whole which uh, exists somewhere but is not empirically really uh, 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 can, cannot be uh, identified empirically uh, that is not my way of looking at politics I have a, so I think one question is is there a common good how would we define it and measure it and as you said it's not about maximizing and optimizing a, a general happiness curve uh, I wonder the, kind of how we would get around that. But I think another point is, and Antoinette um, pointed to that in the pre-discussion, if we take Brexit as an example, where people arguably voted, and the vote was very slim, of course, right? I think we had a number of factors that are interesting. We had politicians that couldn't be held accountable for, it, uh, for what they suggested. We had a misinformation campaign, arguably, where people were portraying the benefits of Brexit very badly. And we had self-interested politicians. So do we need to solve some of these challenges before direct democracy would lead to better choices? I must say Brexit is an unfortunate example of a, a direct uh, vote because there was no serious discussion before. As I uh, uh, emphasized before, the important thing be before a referendum is the discussion. We must know the pros and cons. And that was not done in the, uh, in the United Kingdom. And that's uh, uh, very unfortunate. Uh, coming back to what you said about the common good, I think we should stop thinking about the common good. There is no such thing as a common good. And you rightly refer to Arrow, who said it's not possible uh, to, to say what the common good is. I think the right thing is that we have the right uh, uh, processes to discuss the pros and cons of every, of every aspect which has to be politically decided. And uh, then the common good will be a result, but it will not be directly uh, uh, imposed by politicians or by somebody else. 
Yeah, so I mean, um, if I paraphrase, and hopefully it's correct, in the end, it's all about deliberation, about learning how to come into dialogue, which we, I think, can say have much more often happening here because we're used to initiatives and referendums, which probably is the difference to other countries, which just um, throw in one and then think everything happens. But I would like to still go back to the citizenship because that also means that people are willing to engage in a dialogue and behave and step into the citizenship role. And here as well, you were saying, well, maybe we do have to reform the citizenship role, not only with the voting rights, but also with other aspects so that we can choose, for instance, several organizations we want to be citizens of. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, because I find this a really original concept, I would like you to tell, tell us a little bit about it and also maybe about the possible um, problems which could arise and how to solve them. Uh, thank you. Um, um, I think that is uh, indeed a, a valuable idea that the national states that we have today are historically given. I can see no reason whatsoever why Konstanz is part of Germany, why Schaffhausen, which on, is on the right side of the Rhine, is Swiss, Swiss uh, and that is just uh, a historically given and has no, no further content. Uh, I think we should, we should totally renew federalism in the sense that we should look where are the problems. What problems do we have and what is the, uh, the region or the extension where they are? Take the Bodensee, the Lake of Constance. There are three nations involved, uh, two Deutsche Bundesländer, Austria, and uh, about two or no, three or four even uh, Swiss cantons. They should form a unit of their own and have the possibility to raise taxes and determine expenditures for, the, for this one thing, namely to arrange the Bodensee as, a, let's say, as a tourist region or as a water provider or whatever. A, a totally different issue would, for instance, be how to cross the Alps. Why should Portugal have any interest in that? You know, in the EU, uh, Portugal would have as much interest as Germany and Italy and, and, and uh, 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 other countries. Uh, so let's have a new area which deals exactly with the problem of crossing the Alps, but only with those that are involved. And then, they, again, they should be able to raise taxes and uh, do the expenditures as they see fit. And then we would have a better arrangement of decentralization. And people would, uh, over time, get used to that, these things. So they get involved because they can decide. I think these units should not be technical or technocratic units. They should depend on the, on the referenda and on, on elections. 
very interesting, Bruno, and you've given us lots to thought about. I think, personally, I'm not entirely convinced yet that the common good doesn't exist. And I think the, the, the fact that we had some re referenda in Switzerland, even where, um, to your point on the economic, uh, sorry, the ecological problems of today, people were voting in, in, uh, in disfavor of um, increasing environmental regulation and so on. I, I guess I'm still troubled whether the common, whether the individuals will always be in a position to remediate some of the societal issues that um, influence everybody. But I think your point on they need to have information, Antoinette's point on they need to be interested in being good citizens, so to speak, in the process sense of it. I think those are certainly very, very valid preconditions. And I wonder if we now can go to the organization. May I make one point to that? Please do, when Bruno, you, please do. <laughs> when you look at Switzerland, uh, do you really see any big absence of uh, social common goods? Let's say infrastructure. The infrastructure in Switzerland is reasonably good. Not perfect, certainly not perfect, but reasonably good when you look at how bridges are, how, uh, how roads are, how the public transport works. Uh, when you look the, at the environmental conditions, they are, again, not perfect in Switzerland, but reasonably good compared to many other countries. So, what about gender equality, for example? Gender equality is reasonably good in Switzerland. Uh, uh, I want to come back to what you said about Appenzell. Uh, 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 they introduced women voting, voting 30 years ago only. Uh, but why did it take so long time? Because men had something to lose. I mean, that's a very economic explanation. They had very much to lose. Therefore, they didn't want to share that. Why? In a country like France or Germany, where people, where voters, men, men, male voters have little say anyway, they can well give it to the women also. <laughs> I will bring that comment back to my friends in Germany, Bruno. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to move us, given time, to the organizational section. And of course, for Antoinette and I, the good organization is really at the heart of our inquiry. Um, and my first question is very generic, Bruno. From, from what you've seen in the political economy domain, what are the transferable key lessons for organizations as institutions? Oh, that is a deep question. <laughs> if I was able to... to, uh, to uh, I give a, a good answer, uh, Antoine, it would have no, uh, no, pro, uh, no, uh, she would lose her professorship. <laughs> no, so I have to give a, a, a short answer, Bruno, to make sure. <laughs> I think organizations must be, participation is important, but not the only thing, that's clear. The, the participation should decide what decisions have to be taken quickly by some institution or other, for instance, or what uh, decisions can be taken after extensive deliberation. 
And uh, may I come back to, to, to Switzerland where uh, we, to some extent, we have this system. We have seven people who, are, who have equal power in government. And I think that has a lot of advantages because, because a lot of different uh, views uh, come in automatically compared to that to the American president. He has to go out and seek what other, what other interests are. While in, in Switzerland, with the seven people from three or four parties, uh, this is always really uh, present. And then uh, I, one of my uh, uh, research areas of interest is terrorism. And I think the Swiss way of, to, uh, of organization has a huge advantage. Uh, compare that, no, what is the advantage of Switzerland? If one of the seven is killed by a terrorist, nothing happens. Because there are still six others and they know exactly what to do. Compare to that to the American president. When he goes to a different country, outside of the United States, 400 uh, 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 civil uh, secret service persons accompany him. That's ridiculous. And uh, therefore, I think the Swiss system with seven equal persons is superior also in this respect. I would even say it also helps against overconfidence, another thing you're looking at. So that's very nice. If you're one of the seven, you cannot make out that you're the, the, the biggest hero. Yeah. And of course, there were other things, and, and um, I think people can read it. That's why I just kind of drop it. You were, of course, um, saying very early, early managers should be paid like bureaucrats. So that's another thing to be learned from public <laughs> governance. Um, and then, of course, here we could, could also have a look at your random um, sortition again, another important aspect, how to reform. But I have to say, I mean, I could defend um, management science now. We also looked at some areas um, and we stole not only from your area, but also, for instance, from religious institutions. So there is something called sociocracy, which uh, is coming from um, the Quakers. Um, and here you also did some research. So I would like to have a look at the cloisters because I find indeed um, sometimes I would love UBS to be a little bit more like a Benedictine cloister than what they are at present. So can you tell us what was interesting for governance you learned with the cloisters, which could be interesting for all organizations? Uh, with orders, uh, the interesting thing uh, the Catholic Church has a lot of different orders, I, I suppose at least 100. And the interesting thing, each one of them has a special task or a special way of organizing in, uh, in monasteries. So the Benedictines are rather broad, while, for instance, the Cistercians, Cistercienza in German, Cistercians, uh, are almost the whole time in, uh, in, in the monastery, don't talk to each other. Uh, another such uh, a very strict uh, order is the Cartusians. They only talk, I think, half an hour per week with each other and uh, live well. And the interesting thing is they have 
existed over many centuries. Compare that to uh, two firms. A firm that is 30 years old is considered to be old and uh, well established. In, uh, in uh, the Catholic orders, there are many that are 1,000 or 800 or 600 years uh, old. And therefore, it's interesting to look at how they are organized. And all of them have an active participation role of uh, the members, the monks and the, what is monk? The women monks. <laughs> what is the word? Nuns. <laughs> the nuns, yes, the nuns. Uh, they meet regularly, I think, in most orders every week and talk to each other. And the abbot or the abbotress <laughs> uh, has to listen. And, but then can, can take a decision, but they are dependent on the views of, uh, uh, of, their, of their members. And that makes it very interesting. Another interesting thing is, where does the abbot come from? From inside or from outside? And it seems that it is better from inside than from, from outside. They are more effective because they already know the problems. And a third thing is that uh, uh, the monasteries uh, survey each other. So the abbot of a, of, a, of a monastery goes to another monastery and checks whether they uh, they really attach to the to the goals of the uh, of the order. And he is an, he has an interest in that because uh, his own uh, prestige depends on that. May I introduce another thing which is not only connected to orders, but to the Catholic Church. That is, I think, in every group that discusses, like uh, uh, shareholder meetings, and uh, yes, shareholder meetings and things like that, there should be an advocatus diaboli, a person that has the task to talk against what is, for instance, uh, suggested by the CEO. And, and he should be taken seriously. And there, that means that he must have a career potential to, to go on in a higher group, higher level group, etc. Uh, today, uh, what happens in, uh, in share holder meetings, it's the CEO says something and then uh, the, the members nod and that's it. Uh, and that had very bad consequences, especially for, for Swiss uh, banks, because nobody said something. An example again, uh, the Raiffeisen uh, Bank, which is uh, the third or fourth largest bank in, in Switzerland had a CEO who did whatever he wanted and nobody objected. But if we have had uh, an advocatus or advocata diaboli, they should have asked, is it correct to invite uh, uh, persons uh, working with the bank uh, in, in, in very expensive hotels, very extent for extensive meals and even for sex. Uh, for sex. They, they, of course, 
uh, that would have changed things. I find it very interesting, uh, Bruno, because so if I, if I understand your reasoning, it is really focused more on the process uh, of um, getting to good outcomes. And I think, um, as Antoinette already mentioned, in an article you write on what we can learn from public governance and organization, you cite fixed compensation, as Antoinette mentioned, bureaucrats pay, division of power, rules of succession and rotation, uh, restricted terms and, and re-elections, and then institutionalized competition. So all process interventions, I think, in the same by the same token, the role of the internal devil's advocates is to a degree a process intervention. But I wonder, and I know you're critical of ethical capitalism, so to speak, but is there not a normative question still? Because the devil's advocate would need to intervene on the basis of some understanding of what good is to say, you are maximizing profit in the interest of your shareholders, which maybe is exactly what you should be doing. But there's a wider challenge, which is actually that this, this is not leading let's say, to the ecologically valid answer. Is there not still, are you not avoiding the ethical problem? Uh, to avoid it, we could have more than one uh, advocate, Cartus Diaboli, representing the main, what we consider to be the main, uh, the main is interests. Uh, I would like to, to come to, to, again, emphasize the process is the, the really important thing, but the process must be guided by a constitution or by an institution, because otherwise the process is just talk and then people go home and nothing happens. I think the important thing is always to talk, to have a serious deliberation, to have all the cons and pros and cons into the, on the table, but then take a decision and, and uh, put it into a reality. Otherwise, it's just talk. And that, uh, which, which reminds me of the discussion that we had about Habermasian dialogic ethics and uh, some of the work with Andreas last week. Um, one final quick question from me, and then back to Antoinette, a co-determination. I think you, you, you mentioned it uh, to a degree. Um, I think the studies on German model, the German model of co-determination is sometimes are not, not entirely clear. Um, do you have an opinion on whether that is a good model or whether, whether there are some challenges with the German way of co-determination? Uh, the German co-determination worked reasonably well. We can see that, that the, the economy developed uh, quite nicely and the differences between income are not as large as in other countries, though they are still large and we should do something about it, but they are not excessive. It's not true that in, uh, in Germany there are people who are very, very poor and hungry uh, while there are very, very rich people around. That's just not, uh, not uh, true. Uh, so I, I think this... Deliberation aspect is, is, is very important, but again, we must have a constitution or an institution which really supports the various views that they are taken into account. And I think here we are almost at our own institutions because I would like to have a look at transformation. And um, I think um, once again, 
you were very outspoken that we need to change the way we do research, the way we organize universities. Um, so I would really like to give you the floor to tell us a little bit about your criticism and how we should change things that I think is most important. Uh, thank you, Antoinette. Uh, I'm very skeptical, I must say. I have become more and more skeptical about universities. I mean, I, I spent my life at uh, four or five universities, so I know a little bit how it works in, in various countries. I was in Germany, I was in Switzerland, I was in the United States, etc. Uh, I think what has gone totally wrong is the Bologna system how we applied it. In principle, the Bologna system had nice goals, namely shorten, uh, shorten uh, the, the, uh, the education, shorten uh, university education and intensify uh, people going to other countries. I fully support that. But what happened is exactly the opposite. Uh, uh, the way of study has deeply changed, today's students essentially have to collect points. They run around the university and look where do they get most points with uh, le least work. And uh, that has, of course, that is, uh, of course, advertised on blogs by other students. So uh, that has become the established way of doing research. And uh, we fee we know we professors know that when you give uh, when you start a lecture and want to explain what is the subject, what is important, etc. Uh, people, uh, students listen, and at the end, all they always ask, "What do we know? Have to know in order to get the the points?" And so it's no longer the interest in the subject, but it's the interest in, in gaining. Uh, points and I want to emphasize that's not the problem of the students it's we who introduce the Bologna system in this way and internationally uh, before the 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 system the Bologna system was introduced a lot of students went outside to other countries it's just not true that uh, it's only now the case and now it's again very limited because as students have to, to gain points even when they are outside. And then uh, points, let's say, from some uh, Portuguese or Spanish universities are not accepted uh, in our system, in our, at our university, though they should be, but they are not. Uh, I, when I went to study at Haas uh, School of Business at Berkeley, even those points were not accepted back into the European system. But Bruno, and, uh, if you allow me one more question, because I know we're out of time, but it has been wonderful. And I love your passion and the way that you're bringing true real life economics to the table. And I hope uh, our listeners and viewers will enjoy it as well. But I have one more question because the Bologna system, I agree with, but that is letting, I think, letting you off the hook too easily because of two reasons. Because you have written, and I've got proof in front of me, one, publishing as prostitution, which I found uh, very intriguing in regards to your very own educational system going towards, uh, I think, market uh, worked on, on 
the, the, the new public management uh, 